Now, over the last really six weeks, we have experienced a real shock in terms of U.S. empire. And of course, I'm referring to Vladimir Putin's decision to invade the Ukraine. Now, there had been sort of separatist fighting, almost sort of like a quasi-civil war situation within eastern Ukraine for really since about 2014. Beyond that, the response to that invasion has been really incredible because we've seen the entire Western world decide to essentially cut out the Russian state and the Russian economy clear out of the world. And while a lot of people are cheering that, and that sounds like a great idea, a great thing to do, you know, for all sorts of reasons, at the end of the day, that makes the U.S. influence over the world smaller. That makes our influence over other other organizations, other countries smaller. And so we might feel more powerful now, given that it's just us inside of our little world and we control the U.S. dollar. It looks like Anywhere from like Business Insider to Antiwar.com to really anywhere is reporting that the way that U.S. empire is changing is leading to less influence for us, uh, but also more integration of BRICS countries, Brazil, India, China, Russia, South Africa. They're becoming more integrated and they're forming a counterweight to U.S. hegemony. And it looks as though that the U.S. dollar is is in trouble in terms of it being the world's reserve currency and that has its own implications but really i just wanted to to sort of get your thoughts on the breaking of peace within europe after almost 80 years of of no conflict between direct between major powers within europe uh but also uh some thoughts about how u.s empire has reacted to it and sort of where it goes from there Looking at the conflict today, you know, we really have to go back to 2014 when Viktor Yanukovych was president of Ukraine and, and he was thrown out. There was the street demonstrations in the Maidan, you know, that got tons of media coverage. And the U.S. was very intimately involved in those protests. John McCain going over there to give speeches during these demonstrations and Victoria Newland, who was a she was an assistant secretary of state at the time. She's back in the State Department for President Biden. Um, right. it, there was a leaked phone call about a week or a few weeks before Yanukovych was actually thrown out between Victoria Nuland and Jeffrey Piat, who was the U.S. ambassador in Ukraine. And they're basically saying, this is the new government. This is who's going to be in charge. And that that's what ended up happening. So was major because it did spark the war in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region. The separatists there in the Donetsk and Luhansk republics, they, you know, declared their independence. They're more pro-Russia. And that sparked a war where over 10,000 people died. It was essentially at a stalemate since 2015. It, it, it was, but it, it wasn't, uh, you know, a total ceasefire. There was violations and shelling all the time and people were being killed. Um, so people have to really keep that context in mind. And it was recently revealed the U.S., the CIA was... Yahoo News report revealed that the CIA was training uh, paramilitary forces, was training Ukraine's forces on the front lines of that war. So this is all just important context. And since that war started, the U.S. was started arming Ukraine. It start, actually started under Trump because Obama was afraid to send weapons because he thought it would could provoke Russia. And Trump was the first to send the Javelin anti-tank mi missiles, which we have now shipped thousands and thousands uh, are being sent over there. This is all really important context. And then when you get into the U.S. response, what's really revealing to me is that Secretary of State Antony Blinken, he hasn't spoken with Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, 
since February 15th. That's almost two months ago. They're not even trying. They're not putting in any effort into diplomacy. Instead, they're just pouring weapons into Ukraine. So I, I just think that's very revealing. I think they, they want to drag this out and that they wanted to hit Russia with these sanctions to isolate Russia from the world's economy. And it's interesting, all the stuff you mentioned about India and China growing closer together. You know, President Biden, he keeps saying that the world is is united against Russia, but China and India, that's a pretty significant portion of the world's population. And then you look at Africa, I think, I believe it's about half of the nations in Africa have abstained from voting against Russia at the UN. And you have Brazil. Brazil, there's over 200 million people live in Brazil. They're, they're not on board. It's a pretty significant moment. And I think we're entering a new era. The dollar is definitely going to take a hit from this. It still has a long way to go before you know, really losing its power, but it's definitely taking a hit. I mean, if, if Russia and India, Russia and China started trading in, in the yuan and, and rubles, they did, they've done some deals, oil deals in those currencies over the past few years. But, you know, you, you're going to see India do it. You know, the way the U.S. has kind of been carrying on, the empire has been carrying on since, you know, the unipolar moment when the Cold War ended and the Soviet Union collapsed. Really with the sanctions and the economic pressure, it's really just kind of trying to bully countries into uh, falling in line with your policies. And it, and we know history shows us, if you look at Cuba, uh, that sanctions, you know, they don't work to achieve what Washington's stated goals are. They always just hurt the civilian population. And, you know, you see this in Cuba and Venezuela in Iran uh, now and now in Russia, I mean, Putin's approval ratings have shot through the roof up in the 83%. You know, this isn't stopping the fighting, and I don't think that that was their intention. I think they just want to hurt Russia. And you're you're absolutely right that, that this has a, a long storied context. It's not just something that occurred just like six or seven weeks ago. This is something that's been occurring for quite some time. I don't think we're quite going to have the, the the time or or to, to be able to go into the complexities and the sensitivities of the different ethnic tensions in that area. What makes a country? And it seems everyone wants to balkanize Europe. Just let's mm -hmm. cut it up as many pieces as possible. Russia's decision to go about invading that country and the United States response to it, I think, is fascinating because in the case of Cuba, even the UK doesn't agree with the United States. Like, like even they don't agree with the US. And you have the European Union that actually wants to open up trade. A lot of South America wants to open up trade. The United States is sort of the unilateral country in the world. It's just like, actually, no, we're not doing any of that. Mm -hmm. So there's that. But what's interesting is this is a, a, a coalition effort of over half the world's GDP in terms of like actual production, going after a specific country to isolate them economically. And think about this in terms of just sort of the the broader history of russia which is sort of an ever-expanding project really since 1600s just going from multiple different parts different states within russia to having like peter the great go from being peter the great and ruler of all the russias to there being one state and that state in particular continuing to try and expand in its immediate area even since like Catherine the Great, always try to expand its immediate area and get resources or claim territory, access to either the Caspian, Black Sea, the Mediterranean, you name it. But I think it is interesting that given the, 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 the decision by someone like Joe Biden to not only send a lot of these weapons there, to me, the feeling and, you know, people like Ilhan Omar, speaking of people on the left within the House, actually along with someone else, actually voted against having these weapons 
be sold or at least given to Ukraine, not due to like some sort of like support for Russia's invasion, but due to the idea that's just like, you know, we don't know where these weapons are going to go. And I don't, and they essentially stated, I don't think that more weapons, not less, is going to solve this problem. And given the kind of hotbed that Ukraine is, I don't think that we've quite, I'll put it this way, I don't think we've quite taken seriously, or I don't think we've, we as a population have been given the opportunity to sort of soberly look at this moment of empire and notice what we're doing and notice the weapons that are pouring into this country, whose hands they're going into and where they're going to end up. But specifically, like in terms of currencies, I think it's a really big deal that they've decided to sidestep that for several reasons. There is sort of a a libertarian fixation, um, a right wing fixation with the gold standard and with, you know, money having sort of like this sort of fixed way of the world moving. I don't personally subscribe to that. Um, I think there are social systems we can organize in many ways we see fit. But I think what makes it a lot easier is if you're the world's reserve currency, you can simply print money. If you can't do that in order to meet certain social goals, then in that case, we uh, as the left are going to have to go about funding social programs differently, looking at how we finance the climate transition differently. And also there are also current questions on world's reserve currency and exactly how or at least how that affects third world countries and how we should be looking at that, given that they have to exchange into our currency to get energy and money and whatnot. But just in regards to their integrated payment systems and them cooperating more, the Belt and Road Initiative for China and Russia is pretty big because China has to go through Russia in order to get to Europe to sell its products. And that's really what China is pushing for here. And so it seems that you know, shortly before this, Xi Jinping asked Vladimir to wait until after the Olympics to do this. And he did. And it seems that ever since then, the Chinese have been insistent on not sanctioning Russia, saying this is going to cause an energy and a food crisis. And that's basically all that it's going to do. Other parts of the world, Brazil's been silent. South Africa states, it stated essentially in the middle of March that it's the West's fault. And India is trying to do business with the Russians. So it, it, it seems to me the West lost in all of this. I don't think we've, I, and by we, of course, I mean, people who've gained, who are inside the Western project, I don't think anyone has gained anything by this. And I think, and, and sort of that's a long way of, of agreeing with what you were stating, which is no one's, no one in the West, the West, the Western project itself, I don't think wins by this. I don't think it's advanced by this. I don't think it gains anything because it seems that, yeah, the overarching theme is just screw the Russian state. Yeah. I mean, that's what it seems like. And, you know, President Biden has said it himself, you know, that the, the U.S. and Europe are going to feel a negative impact from these sanctions. And he, he even warned of food shortages because of the sanctions. And that's why I think, especially now after COVID, after the past few years here, everything that's been happening inside the U.S. And, you know, same thing for inside Europe, like how we can convince ordinary Americans, ordinary Europeans that who controls Eastern Ukraine is kind of an issue that we have to worry about now. And it might it might sound like kind of cold, say, oh, forget about the U Ukrainians who are fighting and, and dying. But, you know, again, this goes into how much Western intervention played a role in leading to this war. Of course, it's all on 
you know, Putin is the one that invaded and this is his war and nothing absolves him from that. As soon as you start a war, you know, civilians are going to die. It's going to be horrific. It's the worst thing that could happen in the world, really. There's also a lot of other horrific things happening in the world that the U.S. and its, you know, European partners are supporting throw all their weight behind and it really does expose hypocrisy especially as we turn to saudi arabia and the uae for to produce more oil when they they've been waging a you know one of the most brutal wars in modern warfare uh, against their neighbor yemen and the us and the uk and france have been supporting this completely they wouldn't be able to do it without that military support speaking of yemen there's actually some good news this week there has been a ceasefire that's appears to be holding. Uh, it's uh, according to the Yemen data project, they track airstrikes in Yemen very closely. Um, there's been a week without Saudi airstrikes in Yemen. And that's the first full week since March 2015, when the Saudi coalition intervened in Yemen with the full support of the Obama administration. It's the first week since then that there's been no airstrikes. So that really shows what a serious war this, this has been that doesn't get any coverage in the in the Western media, in the mainstream media, barely a blip. You know, I, there was this report from Jim Loeb at Responsible Statecraft, if you're familiar with them, that said that U.S. news networks are covering the war in Ukraine more than they covered the invasion of Iraq. I mean, it, it's just we're getting bombarded with uh, coverage of this war when there's other wars that the U.S. has been supporting that uh, really get ignored. I think People have to kind of recognize that. And then again, since since Russia invaded on February 24th, the Biden administration has given or announced that they'll give Ukraine an you know $1.7 billion in weapons. That's an insane amount of money. And uh, again, how is this going to stop the war? It's just going to fuel it more. Um, it's lethal aid. It's lethal yeah, aid. It's, it, what, yeah, that's what, what a fascinating a word. I mean, that is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, they focus tested the fuck out of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I think it does say a lot that talking about the lethal aid that the Obama administration didn't didn't provide it in the first few years uh, when the war in the Donbass started because he knew, even though the the administration flew to Kiev and and backed the uh, ousting of Yanukovych, they drew the line at at sending those weapons. And then Trump came in and uh, he started it. And then since Biden came in, you know, he really ramped everything up and led to this. Unfortunately, I don't see this ending anytime soon. I mean, even if there was some kind of peace deal reached between Russia and Ukraine, which I don't see anything really that that would hold like a lasting peace happening anytime soon, even if that did happen, I, I don't see the US saying, okay, Russia will lift the sanctions could be we could trade with you again i think we've crossed the line i think we've really entered a new cold war and people you know we've been using that term for a while exactly. with as relations with russia have kind of soured over the past decade and with china but this is it i mean this is we've really entered it now and in some ways just you know I'm, i wasn't really around during the cold war but my boss and a lot of people i work with were and in and in a lot of ways and i've seen russian officials say this that you know, the relationship right now is worse than it was with the Soviet Union. With the Soviet Union, there was always kind of, they were always talking about right. avoiding uh, direct war. And right, and, and the U.S. never openly, you know, when they funded the Mujahideen in Afghanistan in the 1980s, everybody, you know, knew it was happening, but it was a covert program by the CIA. They've never overtly, you know, supported a proxy war right on Russia's border before. This is, you know, we're really entering 
new new territory here. Yeah, I mean, it, it is entirely a new territory. It is it is actually pretty shocking. And that's the reason why I, 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 I sort of framed it the way I did. In the case of like the Soviet Union, United States, you kind of had to have them in conversation. You sort of had to have them talking because they're the only two countries in the world that control shipping and trade and all the rest of it. Like things have to be organized. The United States and Soviet Union cooperated and ended smallpox. Um, within the world, vaccinated hundreds of millions of people and eradicated it. That's great. But, it, but you know, at the same time, right now, you have them suggesting that we're going to end permanent normal trade relations with Russia. And you remember, that was a suggestion of Donald Trump to end permanent normal trade relations with China. And it's also been sort of, uh, uh, it's been floated even by people like Bernie Sanders, that perhaps you know, we don't revoke permanent normal trade relations, but at the very least, that was with China, but that was at the very least a large contributing factor to the issues that were presented there. And and out of what you said was 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 pretty fascinating because, you know, the United States and Russia not speaking means that Antony Blinken as you stated, hasn't spoken to his Russian counterpart since February 15th. Is that right? Yeah, that's we're, right. Yeah, we're going on almost two months. And the United States has essentially stopped the... I mean, I mean, no. granted, the United States had sanctions on, on the Soviet Union in regards to weapons and certain technologies. You can't do certain sorts of things. But, like, you can't trade in the U.S. dollar? That's wild. Like, like, like... Like people around the world don't quite understand or, or, or people in the United States, excuse me, don't quite understand what that means. Like oil in the world, generally, wherever you buy it, because in Saudi Arabia, the, a, a very large place in the world where oil is produced and also in Canada, they really only accept the U.S. dollar. You have to convert your local currency, your national other countries have to convert their national currencies into U.S. dollars and that exchange rate is to it's often to their detriment and it's to our benefit because our money is the gold standard within that world within this world it's the world's reserve currency so right now us cutting them out of that system no longer essentially they're no longer able to trade within the swift system they're no longer able which means they can't do like international financial transfers the united states uh, joe biden administration blocked their ability to to make a payment on on one of their debts out of a I think it was a JP Morgan uh New York bank account. Yeah. Then uh, on top of that there's uh continuous sanctions on anything from raw material exports to actual like energy exports in terms of natural gas and in terms of the United States and the UK, actual oil itself. I guess that's where we're going to get into the next part of this cuz I, I think it's a pretty big deal that I think it's a pretty big deal that right now India and China are making these financial transactions purely in their own currencies with Russia, and they're able to keep the United States out of the equation wholesale, mm-hmm. like wholesale. That also wasn't done during the Cold War tensions, and I think the the question coming out of all this is is. The United States position out of this is weaker than it was going into this. And Russia, you know, especially within European press, I kept hearing it. The reason why Russia decided to invade was that it saw that the United States was at it was weaker than it has been since the end of World War Two, because, you know, in the night. Well, I mean, the Soviet Union at that time controlled Ukraine. So really, anytime that 
there is no situation in, in which either the Soviet Union or Russia decides to invade some sort of what would be considered a Western European country and there'd be no response. The Soviet Union wouldn't have dared to do something like that. But now we see that, in fact, that Russians are going to attack countries that might join NATO. And well, oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, it, it does kind of come down to that, to, you right. know, at the end, end of the Cold War, when the Warsaw Pact dissolved. Since then, NATO has, you know, slowly, slowly moved further east and is on Russia's borders in the Baltic states there and is in the Black Sea. And, you know, that was always a red line for Russia, uh, and but especially with Ukraine. Um, so, you know, I don't see Russia inv invading a NATO country, but maybe they saw this as a way to stop what they saw was an inevitability, even though the U.S. has said that Ukraine won't join the has basically told Ukraine that they're not going to join NATO, but they couldn't put that in writing to Russia for whatever reason. I think that's another another revealing thing here is that during the talks leading up to the invasion, that was Russia's main demand was guarantee that Ukraine won't ever join NATO and they didn't do it. And, you know, at this time, you know, you have NATO troops and U.S. troops, very small numbers, but they're in Ukraine training uh, Ukrainian soldiers. They, they, they conducted pretty massive drills inside Ukraine and in the Black Sea. So I would say Russia, I don't think they would risk something that they thought would end up with direct war with the U.S., but I, I think they calculated that the U.S., they knew the U.S. wouldn't directly intervene. So I think that was definitely factored into it. But, you know, did they think that the U.S. would really double down like this and and send all these weapons in? And, and they're sharing, they said, that Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, said the other day that they're sharing intelligence with Ukraine as they're fighting Russia, you know, to attack Russia in, in the Donbass and where, and where they've been fighting. So, you know, at what point would you consider the U.S. a co-belligerent in the war? So, and that gets a little scary when you think about it, because when you have these NATO countries, Slovakia, they just sent an S-300 missile defense system, and they're thinking about sending MiG, old Soviet fighter jets that they have. Czech Republic said they're sending tanks. And... What if Russia, to send a message, they decide to take out one of these arms shipments before they enter Ukraine? Not that I think they would necessarily do it, but, you know, that's kind of the territory we're entering here. Then what? You know, if they launch a strike inside NATO territory, what's going to happen then? <laughs> we shouldn't, ha you know, we shouldn't have to worry about this because it, you know, we should have the attitude that at, we have to avoid war with Russia at all costs because the U.S. and Russia have the largest nuclear arsenals in the world. It could mean the end of the world, uh, but unfortunately, that's not the attitude anymore. And you see it. I mean, they kind of disguise it in a in a call for a no fly zone, which would involve the U.S. and NATO shooting down Russian planes, and not only that, but also shooting Russian like air defenses in inside Russia. That you know that could, and they they can Russia can hit targets from inside Russian territory from their surface air missiles. They can hit targets in all of Ukraine. So if you want to enforce that no-fly zone, you have to really take out some Russian missiles. And then there's no way around that being direct war with Russia. Right. No. The, yeah, there is no way around that. And and, mm -hmm. and that's sort of the thing that's, that's, that's wild to me about all of this is that, in fact, Russia did decide to cross that line into that country that is so close to them. And they, they do have a very long storied history with. It is interesting that they decided to do that because... They also stated to the United States that providing Ukraine with these weapons, or at the very least, that providing them with the planes that Poland wanted to give them, 
would make the United States a, a co-belligerent. It would make the United States a, a party to this war. And that, in the quote-unquote in the West, at least within the United States press, was seen as a huge movement. Just like, wait, what? Like, how in the world could they possibly consider that? And I don't think it's... I, I think especially from the Western perspective, that's not unheard of. That that's not something that um, isn't acknowledged or at the very least it it hasn't quite gotten through yet that what kind of conflict that we've seen because there's been no context to any of this from the u.s press and from the western press broadly about who's fighting for what reasons and when that began and all the rest of that at the same time you know these other countries are you know china is ascendant within the world economic order China is going to be, uh, if not already, the wealthiest country in the world uh, per capita, and if not total, and they're going to keep moving up forward. But at the same time, you know, they grew at 8.1% last year. They're not, and granted, you know, they have COVID issues now, and that's that's an entirely different conversation. But for the, the long part of this, the long shot, they are quite capable of, of becoming a world power, if not the world superpower. And at this point, they're sort of sitting on the sidelines and the way that they view this is they essentially have to just keep the peace with Russia and the rest of the world, because at the same time, they have to keep the Russian state happy in order to actually get products through Russia. But they also have to keep the European Union enough happy enough to make sure that products actually get in the European Union that are Chinese in order to be sold. Large swaths of Africa depend on Russian wheat exports for food. Large parts of the world depend on them for energy imports. You can't just decide that you're just going to cut off the pipeline. That's not quite how the economy works. I know there are quite a few leftists online who thought that, like, you know, we'd nationalize oil and immediately we'd be able to, you know, solve all our shortage issues. And it's like, I'm so sorry <laughs> that you thought that nationalizing oil thinks that we can just use every drop from under us. Mm. That's not quite how that moves. But it is interesting that there are serious movements in terms of world trade and that the China has decided essentially that they are going to stick with the Russian horse that they that they rode in on. I mean, I think personally, Xi thinks this has been completely fucked up. And me personally, I think the invasion itself was fucked up. Like, mm. I, I, I think it's ridiculous and just and I don't want to sound too callous or cold about it. But the idea that you, that you have a country of that size, almost 40 million people. And you you got like a military of like two hundred thousand sitting on the border. It's like it's like Soviet Union used to boast the world's largest standing military, like army. Like what are you two hundred thousand? Like 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 what are you doing with that? Like you're not going to take over an entire society. And from what it seems like, U.S. intelligence and Russian intelligence thought like, oh, it'll just collapse. Mm -hmm. Like the, the the entire Ukrainian front will collapse, and we'll just be able to sweep in and take the country. And that's yeah. not what happened. And now yeah. it's turned into this very prolonged, ugly fight where it seems that there are massacres that are occurring behind russian lines as of this weekend and also now there is suspicion and calls of of chemical weapon use yeah i think there's kind of a misnomer i think in the understanding of the invasion uh, of ukraine um you know i think it's pretty clear from the way that they went in that they weren't trying to conquer the whole country like the u.s said like the media says and they they definitely took some significant losses. I mean, they admit that they've lost over a thousand troops, which is pretty significant. And there's been a lot of pictures. You know, it's tough 
there's so much stuff to sift through when, when, when there's a war like this pictures and videos, you don't know what's what, but I've seen a lot of pictures of burnt out Russian tanks, you know, that, uh, were taken out. But one thing that's pretty telling. So Russia says that they never planned a full assault on, on Kiev. And, and then the Western narrative is kind of that Ukraine beat them back and they were defeated and they retreated. But something that people have to recognize is that Russia has ne- has still not unleashed, you know, the full power of their air force. They didn't unleash it on Kiev or, you know, Kharkiv, these northern cities. There was a report in Newsweek from Will Arkin. He quoted an official in the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is the Pentagon's intelligence agency, saying this back in March, that it could be a lot like saying that Putin was holding back in these cities, not in, you know, Mariupol, that, that city's under siege. And, and to kind of illustrate this, Arkin pointed out, the first 24 days of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they dropped less bombs and launched less missiles than the U.S. did in the first day of the invasion of Iraq. The invasion of Iraq was a regime change operation. It was they completely put Baghdad under siege. Yeah. So and I'm not again, I'm not excusing anything because civilians, if they're not intentionally targeting civilian areas, uh, civilians will always die in war. That's the nature of war. That's why it should never be unleashed. I do think that there is kind of this, people are kind of looking at it, at it wrong. And now they're saying, Russia is saying that they, they're going to focus on the Donbass region. And a lot of people say this is them kind of walking it back. But, um, and then when it comes to the civilian deaths, like um, there's definitely reports of civilians being killed, but again, it doesn't seem like it's a top down thing. Like Putin ordered for these civilians areas to be leveled. I just don't see that. But uh, and then with the chemical weapons right now, that claim just came from the Azov Battalion inside Mariupol, which is the neo-Nazi militia that's part of Ukraine's National Guard now. And even I was reading a lot about this uh, right before we talked, you know, Ukrainian officials and U.S. officials are pretty much saying it's it's unconfirmed. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, it's tricky with this. Because there's definitely people in the camp that want to believe everything Russia says and says Russia can do no wrong. And then there's the other side that's just ready, which is, you know, the mainstream media, which is ready to believe everything Ukraine says. And and people do have to recognize that Ukraine has an interest of getting the U.S. They want the U.S. and NATO to in, intervene. And then Russia, of course, has an interest in downplaying everything and saying, no, no not one civilian was killed in Bucha. Well, it's pretty clear that some were, (laughs) but, uh, you know, how they were killed. We don't really know Uh, everybody. Uh, I think there was one drone footage of a bicyclist getting killed by Russian forces, but you know, that mass grave that they say they found of 300 civilians. Um, we don't know exactly how they died. There's a good chance they were killed just in the fighting as civilians do die when there's battles in their, you know, near their homes and stuff. So, but again, you know, I'm not trying to excuse anything because war, horrible, horrific things happen. And it's definitely possible that they could have, Russian troops could have just slaughtered civilians on their way out. Hopefully we'll find out the real story one day, but you know, sometimes it feels like, you know, these days with the internet and uh, kind of all the disinformation that's put out, even after the fact, years later, there's still one side that believes something and the other side that says something totally different. And I think, I mean, and at the same time, you know, there's a, there's considerable, reason to be concerned because you know in the case of the the conflict within ukraine we were talking about how russia's always been sort of insistent ever really since stalin has been very insistent that 
uh, border states alongside the, the, the Russian country uh, are to be there in order to provide security from the rest of Europe. They are afraid of intervention um, or invasion by Europe. I wonder why that is. Um, you know, there's, there's a very long storied history of Western powers, whether it be Germany in particular twice, but also the United Kingdom, Japan, France, and the United States uh, did invade, did intervene within the Russian Civil War yeah. uh, within yeah, the late 19-teens, early 1920s. And uh, they didn't forget that. They didn't forget that for a long time. Um, having foreign troops on their soil in order to prevent a government from coming to power. But at the same time, I think, you know, I, I'm not sure whether or not anyone actually accomplished their goals, because I think from my perspective, just me personally, I think that if he really wanted to take the country, he could have done so. Russia's got plenty of young men. Essentially, with that, with a country of that size, you'd be able just to simply overrun it. You just flood it. And it doesn't seem that that was either possible or that they planned for that. They thought that it was genuinely going to be, this was just going to be easy. We're just going to walk in. It's going to collapse. And, you know, we're going to have our we're going to have regime change because mm -hmm. it seems pretty clear from what's gone on or at least what's been said within the Russian state that they were looking for regime change. They were looking to roll up on Kiev, go in there, take out the current government and move forward. That's literally their exploited their explicit stated goal, which is that Kiev, the government, is just essentially a bunch of neo Nazis uh, who are right wingers and who are looking to pursue nuclear weapons, and that's the reason why I've got to invade. And literally, that was the speech. As soon as that speech was done, bombs started falling within Ukraine. So, I, I, I'm not sure if anyone's goals were actually met in this because. In this sort of conflict, regardless of whether or not Ukraine actually joins NATO, I think the effect is largely the same, if not even more extreme now, because of the, the amount of direct weapons transfers and the kind of assistance that Ukraine is going to receive going into the future. Like, I remember I shared out that article, that quote tweet, uh, you know, I quoted you in saying that, saying exactly that, which is, you know, Ukraine is... It, Zelensky essentially stating Ukraine is going to turn into a mini. It's going to turn to an Israel, not a mini mm. Israel. Israel's already kind of mini. <laughs> yeah, a uh, big Israel. He said, <laughs> "Right, right, a big Israel. It's going to be a security state." Mm. And so they are already putting in orders to German manufacturers, United States manufacturers, for their own Iron Dome system. This is empire moves. The tectonic plates move all the time. But at the same time, I think even without NATO, I don't personally think. I, I don't think I'm going to say that. I don't think this could be done again, but I think for financial reasons, political reasons, it can't be done again just because of what's going on inside the Russian state. Because I think I, I, th I still think that's incredible. I mean, Visa MasterCard just 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 cut off, just stopped working in the country. Just yeah, yeah. Millions of people just totally abandoned. Just no way to get any re like nowhere to get cash, no way to like move around the country, no way mm -hmm. to do anything. It's just immediately cut out. But yeah, I think just just sort of quickly to say that I don't think. I, either side accomplished their goals. I don't think this played out exactly the way that they thought this was going to. You know, I don't think, I think the United States empire and also the West is now smaller than it was, obviously, explicitly so, because they're cutting out countries out of the dollar system, out of the world financial system, and the rest of the world is sort of looking around like, sort of like a sausage party moment, like, Jesus Christ, you guys are eating kids? <laughs> it's just like the carrots. So, and also now the Russian empire has not achieved its goals in Main, and, I mean, its stated goals is to denazify the country. Apparently, that hasn't occurred just yet. I don't think that either side is going to be able to accomplish their goals. So, at the end of the day, 
what kind of world are we setting up moving mm-hmm. into this? Because as you stated, this is beyond even the Cold War. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to say what things are going to like look like, you know, in the future. You know, I don't see this war stopping until at least Russia takes control of the Donbass, which could take could take a while. It could happen quicker than we think. Uh, they haven't really launched a new major offensive yet. I think the Ukraine is warning that they're prepared for it, so we could see a, some real big battles now. Let's say they take the Donbass and then they sign some kind of ceasefire, and it, it would probably be kind of like a frozen conflict, kind of like a Nagorno-Karabakh between Azerbaijan and the Armenian, ethnic Armenians there. It'll be really tense, and I don't think the sanctions are going to be lifted. So it really all depends on the the deal that Ukraine and Russia sign, though, because right now, you know, they've been in, in negotiations, and Ukraine said that they offered not to, to give up their plans to join NATO, but they also want security guarantees that are like NATO's Article 5, which outlines that an attack on one member of NATO is an attack on the entire alliance. It's the mutual defense clause. So they want NATO guarantees without NATO. So I can't see Russia ever going for that. But that's where I think, you know, the role of the U.S. and NATO really comes in because Russia's demands right now, you know, denazification and demilitarization is very vague, but it seems like in the negotiations, they've kind of dropped that. They basically want Crimea to be recognized as Russian territory, Donbass to be recognized as independent, which is kind of de facto recognizing it as Russia, because the only way they'll be able to keep their independence is with Russia's support, you know, and they want neutrality and they do want, I think, Ukraine to shrink its military, which will be a hard sell after all this, but, um, right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and as you know, the U S and NATO are pouring weapons in, and increasing sanctions, I think that just gives Ukraine more of a reason to fight when in you know reality, I mean, the Donbass and Crimea, especially Crimea, they're never getting Crimea back. And Donbass, you know, there was a peace deal, uh, the Minsk agreements that were agreed to in 2014 and 2015 that established the ceasefire in the Donbass that, you know, there was always violations, but generally the war was at a stalemate for the past uh, few years. And under that agreement, Donbass would have stayed part of, it would have been, uh, remained uh, part of Ukraine. Ukraine would have had to cede some level of autonomy. Now that's, it was kind of vague. We're not sure what kind of, how the autonomy was defined, but under that deal, it still would have been part of Ukraine. So kind of the farther Ukraine, the more Ukraine continues to fight, I think the more that they're going to eventually have to give up. Um, so yeah, I I just wish that the U.S. just had some sense here to uh, kind of push for a diplomatic solution just to stop the fighting. But uh, with the way things are going, uh, you know, I mean, you have General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he's saying that he expects this to go on for years and years. He said maybe even decades. So, I mean, that's what they're preparing for. They want to arm an insurgency against Russia on Russia's border. There was reports in the New York Times about this before Russia invaded back in January, that the Biden administration was considering our, uh, funding an insurgency. And then if you you look more long-term, you know, everybody, you know, you had Hillary Clinton on TV talking about how the U.S. funded uh, Mujahideen in Afghanistan. You had Max Boot make this point. You have all these officials, people in Congress saying, yeah, we did it in Afghanistan. <laughs> how did that end up? They never finish <laughs> the scenario there. Well, that ended up, 
you know, the Mujahideen turned into the Taliban and then uh, bin Laden and his fighters were there and that really radicalized them and gave them, you know, their first big battle. And then they turned their focus on the U S and, uh, now, I mean, there are very extremist elements within Ukraine's armed forces, you know, literal uh, Nazis. <laughs> and, you know, we're really just ignoring them or there's been a lot of articles in the mainstream press kind of downplaying, you know, the Azov Battalion and saying, oh, they used to be Nazis, but they're not really Nazis anymore. Um, and again, it, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's not, you know, I think Putin, you know, definitely the Russians definitely exaggerate the Nazi presence in Ukraine, but it is very real and they are influential. And as war goes on, as more people are fighting and dying and there's more violence, you know, it's the extremist elements that are going to get more emboldened. That's just the way war works. So they're probably going to become more influential in the country than they were before. And that's also gets into Zelensky, the president, him giving anything up right now is political suicide. You know, uh, if he said, okay, here's, here's Donbass, here's Crimea. He would have to probably flee the country. <laughs> um, I would so because that was you know when he was elected, he ran on making peace with the separatists, but uh, he came under so much pressure, kind of from the nationalist forces, that he never he never did that, which was pretty unfortunate. So that's where we are now. Hammers shatter things. The worst always make it always make it through, and usually make it to the top. Uh, mm. So. Yeah, and in warlike situation, it's almost like a, a colonial situation. Eventually, you get to a point where it's just warlords and it's just killers left. There's no one to reason with. There's no more negotiation. There's no diplomacy to be had. And I hope with it, we don't reach that situation within the Ukraine. And I certainly, especially early, I, I very much so hoped that that this could be stopped, that, that this could simply be reversed. This could simply go back to the way it was. And unfortunately, that is not how this is going to work, how any of it is going to work. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the Ukrainian's response to it and the kind of destruction that they face, but also the geopolitics of it and how everything has begun to shift. Because now there are because Joe Biden's throwing the Chinese a few bones. You know, he's taking tariffs off of certain uh, Chinese products like semiconductors, certain I know and in, in, in my work, you know, graphics cards have become a lot less expensive. And so everyone's excited. T tariffs and other products have come down. He's also yeah. oh, and the Chinese are also opening up uh, certain sectors of their government to United States cooperation. Um, it seems they're trying the carrot uh, for now with China when it comes to the Biden administration. With China, you know, it's just another example of how, how kind of short sighted their sanctions are. There was reports that said Russia asked China for military assistance uh, about last month. And that actually turned out to be not true. There was another report in NBC News last week that cited a few U.S. officials who said the Biden administration has been sharing uh, information based on like low level intelligence stuff that they didn't have evidence to back up to the media as part of like an information war against Russia. And then they admitted it to the media, which was very strange. But one of the stories that they said wasn't based on hard evidence, as, as these officials said, the NBC News, was this idea that Russia asked China for military assistance. But anyway, you had that. And then you have Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor. He's been warning China, don't help Russia evade our sanctions or else. And then around this time that they were talking to China, they put new sanctions on Chinese officials. I forget. They said just for like vague human rights abuses, they didn't even mention anything specific. The wonder, like, why 
if you're looking at the situation right now and you have these sanctions to impose on these Chinese officials, that it's probably not really going to affect them at all. You know, why, why would you do it now when you're trying to get China to not help Russia too much? We're on a collision course with China too over the next, it would take much longer because we would have to really decouple economically. But and, and that's going to take quite a lot, and which is why I mean mm-hmm. I've always stated that the likelihood between, that like actual military conflict between the United States and China is hilarious. Like that's not in, in its yeah. present, but like like Walmart wouldn't be able to function. Yeah, <laughs> <at no. all. laughs> like it's like no, like I'm sorry, but that's just there's, not. There's also been like a pretty major U.S. military buildup in Southeast Asia and in the South China Sea. They've been really increasing like they send warships and warplanes and spy planes and uh they're building up alliances in the region with uh, the quad which is india japan australia and the u.s they've been doing more military exercises biden has his eyes on uh this new they actually signed a new deal with australia that's going to get them uh nuclear powered submarines um Mm -hmm. and the pentagon they recently released their new national defense strategy that they put out every few years and it named china as the top threat facing yep. the US military. So China is kind of the long-term focus. And you know, you could draw a lot of parallels to Ukraine and China, Ukraine and Russia and China and Taiwan, let's say. Right. China always says Taiwan is a red line and in the past few years the US has kind of been has been taking steps to increase diplomatic ties with Taiwan. You know, since 1979 the US has recognized Beijing as China instead of Taipei. Uh, starting under Trump, they started sending high-level U.S. officials to Taiwan and relaxing restrictions on contacts. And that stuff, I think, angers China more than the U.S. warships that are patrolling their coast. And they've been warning. And uh, China's new ambassador in the U.S. warned back in January. He said, U.S. support for Taiwan is like the surest way for a war between the U.S. and China to ever happen is if he, what he said, you know, the so-called independence forces in Taiwan, if they're emboldened by the U.S., that that can lead to war with China and the U.S. and I think those red lines should be taken seriously. As that should oh, be the sorry. lesson from Ukraine right. is that same with Russia. You know, the U.S. under no circumstances can go to war with China. They have enough nukes, but unfortunately, that's the way we're going. And uh, there's a lot of money to be made in this military buildup in Asia. And China is big and a lot of Americans don't like China now and that can be scared into believing that they're trying to take over the world and invade the u.s so you know the pentagon and all the arms makers they see that's their justification now for spending and growing is china well look i mean i mean they are going to take over the world but so did we i mean and so did the <laughs> british and so did the french and so did spanish and so did everyone else and i mean that partly tongue-in-cheek it doesn't look like china actually wants to rule the world in any way like an, an actual western country would yeah, uh, thank God. <laughs> thank God. It looks like they're actually interested in the economic development of the countries that they're, it, it, at the very least, in a colonial relationship with. It doesn't look as though that they're sim- simply looking to slaughter or push off people off of land in order to rip out as much shit out of the ground and sell. Yeah, I mean, they've had the U.S. empire to look, at, you know, to follow as an example of what not to do, I would, I would guess. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, what China's doing is completely different. And, and I don't think that, you know, besides Taiwan, that they have any military ambitions, uh, you know, to go start conquering their neighbors, uh, which is kind of the narrative that we're fed. It's more through these economic deals. And, you know, everybody says that China's Belt and Road Initiative, uh, their 
influence on these countries is is going to make them more authoritarian. But you know, you look at a lot of the Central Asian countries that they're doing business in; it's not uh, Chinese influenced. You know, most countries have very authoritarian governments, and uh, it's not necessarily Chinese influence that's going to make it any worse. But um, yeah, and you know, the U.S. they really want to stop that project, and this that's another whole part of them kind of dividing the world into blocks. And I think it's really going to, you know, not work out the way that the U S wants it to. And I think the whole, I think the whole theme of all this is that nothing is working out the way that any Imperial power is quite playing this out. And the thing is, I think that's kind of the point of all this is because who knows where this is all going to go, how this is going to play out. These are all human beings that when we were talking about different systems, different governments interacting, these are all people at the end of the day, interacting with another with different goals um, within their own political structure, not to mention internationally. And so, yeah, um, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it just sort of, you know, finally, in the case of China, you know, I, I think that's fascinating. In the case of Taiwan, you know, I have a really big interest in, 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 in Taiwan due to TSMC. One out of every two semiconductors in the world comes out of that factory or excuse yeah. me, that, out of that company and specifically Taiwan, the country itself. And it's this small little island nation. Um, and so, you know, I've, I, I proposed several different things. The United States having its own national foundry, because I don't, I don't think at all that we should be depending on those, those foreign sources for the reasons that we found out over the pandemic. But at the same time, yes, I think that if there is that Mao stopped at Taiwan, Mao conquered a big part of manchuria even got it back from russia and the soviet union mm-hmm. right even he stopped at taiwan well part um, of the reason why he stopped was because the u.s navy right. uh stopped him right right, <laughs> right. And I was just about to say, yeah yeah i was just about a to say yeah don't I, it's another thing people don't a lot of just so many americans don't understand the history of taiwan and why it is what it is and how much the u.s was involved in in that and uh even, you know, during the whole COVID thing, when it first hit, there was that clip of the World Health Organization guy. He was asked about Taiwan and I don't know what he like didn't. He was like, huh, what? And he like hung up <laughs> because right. Taiwan isn't recognized as a country. But, the you know, the U.S. doesn't recognize Taiwan as a country. And I think a lot of Americans didn't realize that. I, I've told that to some of my friends who didn't even know. It. Like that was kind of shocking to me. Um, just how little people have a grip, little of a grip people have on that situation. Right. Um, but anyway, I should, uh, I got to get going soon here. Yeah, absolutely. It was really nice speaking to you, Dave. Uh, this is Dave DeCamp, of course, he's news editor over at antiwar.com. I'll make sure to put that down, down in the description. It was really nice speaking to you, Dave. Hopefully we can talk again sometime. Yeah, it was good talking to you. Good meeting you. And yeah, people should check out antiwar.com. You mentioned in the beginning, you know, we are libertarian for the most part, like our staff is, but we run, uh, opinion pieces from people from tons of we work with a bunch of leftists and run opinion pieces all over the political spectrum and i focus on news coverage that i kind of try to keep our uh opinions you know out of it and it's kind of just watered down news coverage in the context of the empire people could check it out antiwar.com